After all, he's not a tame brain. But your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could do this type of thing. If you guys were the same you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, everyone. Hey, hey, hey. And welcome back to Story War with E.O. Nunn. Uh, I actually have the great honor and privilege of talking to one of my good friends and longtime mentors, um, Joel Gruy. Uh, Joel Gruy is the uh, director, executive director of Generation Joshua, as well as the executive director of HSLD Action, HSLDA Action, which is their PACs and how um, HSLDA does all of their political stuff that they need to do to defend those homeschool liberties. He started his life of advocacy at the, in the sixth grade when he convinced his mother to homeschool him. He went to work on Capitol Hill for Congress J.C. Watts and then delved into the world of demographic research and now serves, as I've said, as the director of Generation Joshua. Today, Joel travels across the U.S. training and mentoring young leaders. He draws on over 20 years of both ministry and political ex experience to inspire a generation that, in his opinion, will change the world. Joel lives in Washington, D.C. area with his wife, Christy, and their three ch children. Joel, thanks for coming on today. Ethan, it's great to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. So there's a plethora of topics we could talk about. There's a great many things, but what I really want to talk about with you today is how philosophy and theology both really influence policy and politics in ways that we may not think about it. No, that's a f okay. Fair. Um, now, I will have to say, first of all, that will very much depend on what your philosophy or uh, religion uh, is, right? Because right. depending on what that is, that will inform your politics very, very differently. Um, uh, that has a huge, it's had a huge effect historically on U.S. foreign policy and U.S. domestic policy. And frankly, it's got a pretty good impact on other countries' policies as well. And we, we, in the U.S. at least, we tend to think of government as being separate from, in a sense, philosophy, but also religion. And that's, that, that gap is significantly narrower than most people think it is. In fact, there's a lot of overlap that people don't expect. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think the founders knew this and the founders saw this in a lot of ways, you know, even in some of the designs for the seals and designs for different um, things with Moses parting the Red Sea and such. Mm -hmm. They did not see the split as we do with church and state because they didn't believe in the separation of church and state the way that many historians talk about it today. But let's I guess let's start with some hot topic, modern issues, and sure. we can go from there. So right now in the what, spring of 2021, mm -hmm. one of the big things that's happening right now is over in Israel. Yep. There is this feud, I guess, going mm -hmm. over Israel and Palestine, which yep. has gone for many. It's old. <laughs> it's, it's really old. Read your Bible. But it reignited recently. But yep. it reignited recently. So can you explain to us what those two, what the two sides, I guess, the two main sides sure. Sure. of those, uh, of that feud is? Mm -hmm. So, Okay. You got to understand that in the current iteration of the Middle East conflict between Palestine and Israel, uh, this goes back to, um, well, honestly, a little before World War One. Okay, so we're going to go back in time for a little bit. At that point, um, the British controlled most of the Middle East, okay? and they, which included well, what the modern-day state of Israel and Palestine. Um, they had a, uh, I think the term was a, a mandate, a UN mandate to kind of manage. The UN didn't exist yet, but they they were running it and eventually got permission to keep running it. Uh, but they, 
essentially were peacekeepers between the two sides. Uh, peacekeeping is an overly positive and strong word relative to how that worked. But they they were the ones who essentially drew up the Middle East in the current map that we know. Okay, okay. so if you're looking at the borders of Jordan, Syria, Iraq, um, Israel, etc., even Egypt, like those were largely drawn by Britain, particularly as they started disentangling themselves from the Middle East, they started creating essentially governments as they would pull out. And Palestine was one of the last areas they, 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 they kind of controlled. Now, understand during World War II, there was a significant amount of assistance offered to the British government by um, a large group of Jewish nationals. And the condition of that assistance, or at least for a lot of them, was that they would be given a homeland. And that is something they'd been wanting for a long time. And particularly after what happened in World War II in Germany, there was a pretty strong international consensus to say, yeah, they need a place to go. Um, and there's good reason for that. That had been the same condition issued on their assistance in World War I. But if you notice, in between one and two, that never got made. Right. Okay. So in World War II, there was a, we'll help you with this. And they were a huge part of, for example, dealing with the Enigma uh, code system that the, that the Germans used All right. at the time. But they never got their land. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, over the, the late 40s, as it were, after World War II, that issue kind of got forced. And Britain slowly disentangled itself out of Palestine. Mm -hmm. And they essentially created what we can contemporarily see right now as kind of Palestine or Gaza and kind of these different areas here and what is currently the state of Israel. Now, understand, as soon as Israel left... The surrounding Middle Eastern countries, uh, as well as the Mufti in Jerusalem, uh, which was the large uh, uh, Muslim leader, basically went to war in an attempt to drive them out of the out of the area entirely. Uh, because keep in mind, up until that point, the the Palestinians had largely Palestinians the wrong term, but the kind of Arab culture had largely ruled Israel for quite some time. Like you got to go back to like pre-Turks right. uh, to get to a different area there. But that was considered the ancestor, and that was now considered an ancestral home for two different people groups. That's not a recipe for happy coexistence. And as a result, that conflict uh, sprang to life. The nascent state of Israel, uh, with the assistance of some very interesting parties, including some kind of cast off uh, uh, aircraft, uh, a bunch of leftover German weaponry and some other things, wow. essentially fought their way back and made the kind of the first iteration of the state of Israel. And they've been in a series of, of conflicts back and forth ever since. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sometimes they're on the receiving end of the attack. Sometimes they're on the offensive. That's happened before right. um, the six days war. Uh, so in their, in their defense, their version, it would be that, that we saw we were out to be attacked and we moved first. Okay. So you can, you can go hash through each one of those and there's lots of individual moments back and forth. Suffice to say, there's not a happy coexistence between the two. Um, to be fair, Palestine as a nation state has never functionally existed. Okay. Right. It was essentially Britain and then Israel. And there's this other land because it's not land that is ruled by any of the other sovereign countries, Jordan, Syria, et cetera, mm -hmm. nor is it technically wanted, it seems. Um, but it is useful politically for different entities in the Middle East to support financially and militarily uh, the Palestine zones and essentially use them as prods or buffers against Israel relative to them. Uh, unfortunately, at least in my view, they that means that the Palestinians themselves are often used yeah. um, by some of these other countries. But that's just what I can see there. Long and short of it, this crisis tends to spike regularly. Okay, mm -hmm. There's something sets it off and the whole thing goes nuts. The current issue right now 
is, and this has been a recurrent one, but it's a, it's, it's back up again, is essentially the Jewish efforts to, to reestablish homes and communities. Now, their version of it is that there are families who were displaced and they can prove their lineage back to certain areas of property that are way back in time. And as that happens with proof in court, they are then granted rights to essentially evict a current landowner because that land in their view, legally speaking, is illegally obtained and the rightful owner gets the land back. The flip side of that on the Palestinian side is, I'm sorry, by, by, by rightful landowner, you realize we've been here for 75 years or 100 years or whatever that number is. Right. And both of them have historical claims to the land, different time periods, but they both have even some legal claim. Like there's contracts that both say you both have this piece of land and it's the same piece of land. Right. Okay. That, well, that's not a recipe for people to live happily. Okay. Yeah. And, and so this conflict regularly reignites and when needed, it is that is the current spark is over a situation just like that. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. So I guess um, going back to some of the history stuff, why does um, why does the UK constantly support Palestine over Israel? The UK developed a significantly friendly, has worked very hard um, historically mm -hmm. to have a particularly friendly relationship with the Arab states. Okay. Um, keep in mind, Montgomery's efforts against Rommel were based in Egypt. Okay, They've been friends with and have trained a lot of the royalty in the Middle East, okay? Mm -hmm. The current King of Jordan was babysat by the current Queen of England. Ah. Okay. They know each other. Like, okay. don't tell anyone, but I think she changed his diapers. Like that's, yeah. that's kind of how this game went down, okay? Like, yeah. because where, if you, if you were kind of that up and coming royalty in the Middle East of some kind, where did you send your, your kids to be educated? Oxford. Like you're going to England. Right. Like, and so there was a very well-established tie there. Mm -hmm. The Jewish state didn't have the same thing. And keep in mind with, with Iraq already existing and Saudi Arabia and like, like those, those power units existed and have existed for a long time. Mm -hmm. And the way Britain's done its foreign policy is you build relationships with those existing power units. Therefore, there's a pre-existing power balance there. Okay? Right. Also, um, <laughs> the UK needs oil, right? Israel doesn't provide it. The Arab countries do. That's right. Okay. Uh, Israel can get some, and there's a whole another debate that can create uh, crossfire there. But that aspect comes into play, and there is a structural advantage for the British to have positive relationships with the Arabs over the Israelis, but not too far because they mm -hmm. also have an issue where uh, World War II existed, right? Like that right. was a thing. Yeah. And so, like we look at it and say, well, morally, there's an obvious line sometimes, but. In the way they view the world, that's not as obvious, okay? And sure. they have strong pre-existing friendships, okay, mm -hmm. that have gone for quite some time. And frankly, the other thing you've got to remember is that when the Jews were were trying to establish their homeland, because some of them weren't willing to wait for for Britain to leave, they mm -hmm. took matters in their own hands and became very violent, okay? Right. They were Jewish terrorist entities that existed that attacked regularly British soldier and military units, okay? So there was... They would look in as not, not domestic terrorism, but they were definitely, relatively speaking, terrorists. And so keep in mind, Britain's not had a great relationship with, with dealing with violent people that are outside of the government within their, their borders. Uh, look at, you know, uh, look at Ireland, look at uh, kind of how yeah. this goes down. Like that, that, that's a thing, right? And we've seen what the UK does as a response to that. The people before the state of Israel, but people live there that were Jewish, there was a group 
or some smaller groups, not the, not the dominant, but there were smaller groups that took a militant and violently militant take on that. And that right. will, and they remember that like, like mm-hmm. the U S didn't have any, didn't suffer any of those casualties, not, not sure. functionally, maybe some international reporters, but like not where they're seeing their troops going home in body bags, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, the UK has a pretty long memory. Right. And, and with reason, right? Sure. Um, now we could also say they legitimate, they should not have legitimately been there at all. And so they're kind of setting themselves up for it. And that debate can go back and forth, but they have their experience with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you have, the UK and other countries support Palestine quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then you have the US most notably has generally and historically supported Israel. Correct. And that is generally because of the Judeo-Christian values that America has, America has held. But there has been constant debates between even the church mm-hmm. on how we should support Israel mm-hmm. and what a Christian's view on Israel should be. Sure, sure. So what are those what are those debates okay, so if we get into the theology of this within what we consider um christianity in america so getting into a, a subgroup as it were there are two notable philosophical views they often involve your view of the end times your view of hermeneutics how you interpret scripture etc one of them says that that god has a specific plan for the the nation and people of israel right and that plan isn't done yet Okay, mm-hmm. And thus, there are specific things, promises that are binding on them specifically that even with the church as it exists today, those still exist. And those and there are blessings and curses that go along with, right. OK, assisting or harming them. And that as much as the as as kind of call it Gentile Christians have been grafted in, they still exist. Right. Okay? And thus, there is a strong biblical precedent to in this view, to supporting the people of Israel, the people of Abraham, right? Right. Okay. And that, and then that the, the state of Israel works hard to make that jump from that to supporting the state of Israel. Right. Theologically, it's the people. Okay. Right. The state of Israel works really hard to make that the the government of Israel, right? Okay. Right. And, and to to a fairly reasonable amount of success. Mm-hmm. So there's that aspect. The other thing you get is that um, uh, the other side of that debate is that. No, actually not. The the promises and blessings that were established in Scripture to Israel in the New Testament move to the church. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so if if there are Jewish people who are part of the church, then there's those blessings. But if not, that, that and those are two different theological points of view. Okay, correct. Yeah. Now I'm not gonna pick sides on them. I definitely have a preference, but that's not the point of this. The, the, understand that depending where you fall on those the theological aspects, how you interpret Scripture, how you do hermeneutics, how you interpret end times. Mm-hmm. That can have a very direct effect on how you understand the U.S.'s relationship should be mm-hmm. with Israel and what that looks like. Okay, yeah. you have someone who says that Israel, God is as a, as an entity, is done with the, the the people group of Israel, and now they're working with the church. They'll look at Israel in probably more less charitable, more jaded eyes. Someone who says, mm-hmm. "No, God's not done, and there's specific things that He wants to do with them, and I would rather be on His side of the plan than not." Right. That'll put you in a very different perspective relative to them, right? It will, yeah. And to be fair, in all of that, Israel knows that fact. They, like Their government, their foreign mm-hmm. policy team, the Mossad, their intelligence agencies, um, they understand that theological distinction and as applicable will use it mm-hmm. to try and leverage support. Right. Saying that theologically you have a reason to support us. Mm-hmm. And frankly, to a fairly high level of success, historically. Right. Um, doesn't mean it's 
always that way. And there's other reasons why people will strongly support Israel. Right. It is relatively speaking to the rest of the Middle East, one of the freest countries there, probably mm -hmm. the freest. I um, it's not free like we are. Understand Israel is right. a socialist state. It yes. is not a kind of capitalist free market, like, like free democracy, republic, uh, republic that we are. Mm -hmm. But it is significantly freer than the kingdom of, right? Right. Insert name, right? It's significantly freer than, you know, the, the military running Egypt or whatever, whatever the version mm -hmm. of the day is. So in that regard, they are significantly closer to to our form of government and culture than maybe the rest of it. And thus there's also an element saying that looks more like us. Right. It's like when people look at, you know, China and Taiwan and, and Taiwan's like, we have a little league and people are like, Oh, that looks a lot. That looks more familiar to me. Right? right. So Israel has that same dynamic coming in. And so that gets layered on top of the theological underpinnings and mm -hmm. it becomes a much easier sell. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and you and I were talking earlier about one thing that we often don't think about because Israel is such a small area. Yep. Is that they are a nuclear power, like they internationally. Are. They are, and they, they don't admit it. But right, they are. <laughs> right, exactly. And they don't say that they are, but everyone knows that they are. With as with as many warheads as they've probably taken from other countries, yeah, or made their own. They had a project with South Africa at one point to develop nuclear power, and South Africa um, willingly denuclearized—that's the wrong word, but whatever. Um, <laughs> whereas Israel's like. Thank you. Have a good day. And yeah. just like disappeared. So right. there's different estimates as far as what their, what their what nuclear right firepower now. is. Mm -hmm. um, but it's probably a safe bet to say they are, they right. have it. They don't admit it. They mm -hmm. aren't a signatory to the nuclear non-proliferation agreement. They aren't a signatory to any of the rules. Yeah. Um, they have a very high level of um, stay out of our national security affairs. Why? Because they are pressed regularly. Okay. If right. you've seen the Hamas rocket strikes on Israel, and the Iron Dome. I got to meet one of the creators of the Iron Dome a couple of years ago. That That's was pretty amazing. Cool. Um, that is a remarkable technological achievement, sure. which, uh, to, which to be fair, has about, I think it's what is it, an 80 to 85% intercept accuracy rating. Right. Okay. That's amazing as far as a point defense mm -hmm. system. I think it's even gone up in the last week or so. Uh, I'm sure it has been getting lots of practice. Yeah. <laughs> um, however, I will note that when you're playing defense, when you miss one, yeah. people die. When you're on offense, if you miss once, whatever, right? Okay, right. you just keep firing. But when you're on, when you're, when all you're doing is blocking, every time you miss, the likelihood of someone getting hurt goes up. Right. It's a remarkable map that's actively tracking my rocket strikes and Iron Dome defense incidents uh, as it happens real time. I, I, I'll send it to you later, but yeah. it's a really cool thing to see. But the Iron Dome as a defense is is purely a defensive entity. Mm -hmm. It doesn't attack. Right. But if it's a one-sided battle, right, all you do is defend and people are constantly lobbing weapons at you, well, that game gets old real fast. Right? Sure. And so Israel will occasionally go, new plan, and return fire. Right. Uh, unfortunately, it's dealing with people who will put their rocket launches on top of hospitals or on top of newsrooms or studios or, or medical facilities. Mm -hmm. And then we'll report all the civilian casualties in theory that happened mm -hmm. when they put their missile installation on top of place kids live. Right. Okay. That's not okay. Um, but they also don't get called on it. The AP has very much been acting poorly, the uh, Associated Press, yeah. relative to their reporting of the Middle East, because the common narrative in the press right now is that Israel is the bad guy. Mm. And that is at, at, at best a wildly simplistic version of it. And frankly, more likely an intentional misleading. Um, right. And they're not getting called on it. 
Yeah, yeah, they they aren't. And I mean, one of the common arguments I'm hearing from some Christians against the state of Israel is, um, you know, they shouldn't be doing that because they're Christians in Palestine. Well, when you Ah. look at when you when you look at it that way, there can be Christians in any nation. That's true. So, so what would your what would your uh, rebuttal be to that? Okay, so I would say that every nation has a right to self-defense. That's a mm-hmm. pretty traditional line where it says that if you are being attacked, you are allowed to retaliate and to stop that attack. Now, there are rules for what we consider just war. Okay, yes. One of them is that you don't intentionally target civilians. One of them is that you try to minimize, minimize collateral damage. Uh, one of them is that you try to only use as much force as is strictly necessary to achieve your ends. There's actually a whole sequence on that. And at some point, you should, we should have a talk about that. That's yeah. specifically just the rules of just war. But Israel is compared to the other side, largely in compliance with mm-hmm. the rules of war. Not perfectly, by a long shot. Um, but if you look at the way the two sides operate, one sure. of them is proximally close, and one of them doesn't care. Right. Okay? Um, you don't intentionally put your military operations in the middle of civilian proper, civilian zones. Right. right. But they do. They do. And... Um, and Israel is in now put in a position where it can either just keep getting punched or because because the people that are punching them use innocent human life as a shield mm-hmm. or they have to make a choice to strike back and they have to face that ethical dilemma every on every retaliation strike they use, which is a, is, is a nightmare in a sense to be able to contemplate doing. Mm-hmm. But I will note... One of the things they did recently, I don't know if you heard the news about the, the tunnel incident. You heard yeah, what was going yeah, on? Okay. Heard, yeah. So this was a couple days ago. During the incident, the, the head of the press for the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, made a statement to the press that Israeli troops were entering, uh, I think it was the West Bank. Might have been Gaza. I don't know which zone it was now. Mm-hmm. But basically entering the Palestinian territory. Okay, Like ground troops were entering. That's a big deal. They don't normally do that. Usually what they do is they retaliate with airstrikes. Right. They said ground troops. Uh, no, it was Gaza. It was Gaza. Okay. Because when that happened, what seems to be interesting is the, the fighters um, in Gaza have what they call the Gaza Metro. Basically, it's a series of tunnels that allow them to rapidly move ground troops to oppose Israeli force incursion into Gaza uh, through the area. It's their military tunnels. Right. Right, that have been basically been done. But Israel mapped them. Okay. And everyone went running into the tunnels to grab their gear and move to, 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 to stop the Israeli ground force. And the Israeli bombers went, hello, click. And down came the bombs. And they blew away the tunnels. Okay. With the soldiers inside. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the AP threw a spectacular fit, the Associated Press, because they've realized that when... The IDF said we're, and the IDF says it was a mistake in, in saying that on the press, and you can believe that or not. But the 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 AP realized that when they repeated that statement, what it did is it pulled a lot of the fighters out of the civilian zones and moved them into an area where the Israelis were like, now you're outside of where the innocents are, right? And then they were on the receiving end of that weapon, and then they've thrown a fit because they said the the, the press is like we were used. Mm-hmm. They very well might have. And what they were used for was to theoretically draw off fighters from civilian zones so that they could be dealt with without putting innocents in peril. Right. Now, I'm not saying that every person trying to defend their homeland is not, is not, a, is, is, is bad. I'm not saying there's no innocence involved. There's innocence. Frankly, on both sides, you get pulled into this and I get that. Right. Um, but 
This is why we say war is messy. Or what was the mm-hmm. Patton quote? Not Patton, uh, Sherman, war is hell. Right, yeah. That as much as the, the language is is not great, it's not wrong. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I think we've forgotten how incredibly messy armed conflict gets and how often mm-hmm. people get hurt. And it's real hurt. There's real pain. Yeah. Um, but it's uh the the press were more worried that they were being uh used yeah. than they were about how this thing was going down. Yeah. It, it, like the Sherman quote reminded me, I think Robert E. Lee said, um, it's a good thing that war is so awful because we'd enjoy it otherwise. And something else. Was, was, I thought well, that was a terrifyingly insightful quote. Very true. Um, but I mean, one of the things that we haven't necessarily touched on is you did say that Palestine wasn't, isn't necessarily a recognized state. It is not. But the people it who are ruining it is Hamas. Hamas, yeah. And then Hezbollah. Which, Hamas, and Hamas being, and Hamas and Hezbollah argue and fight. Right. Um, but they will occasionally get together to, to deal, to fight Israel. Right. But they are both recognized terrorist organizations. And we have to understand that a, a terrorist organization, a designated terrorist organization, is functionally trying to run um, right. a quasi-country. It's right. not a recognized nation state, but it is, it's something. Mm-hmm. And, and when you hear reports of casualties, like this many civilians died in, Ga- in Gaza from Israeli airstrikes, that's coming from the Gaza Health Ministry, right? What is the Gaza Health Ministry? It's part of the Hamas terrorist network. But they call themselves the health ministry and they report it as if they're a health ministry, mm-hmm. like a bunch of doctors. Right. Like, I'm not saying there's no doctors involved. Like, Hamas has a semi-civilian aspect to what they do, <laughs> but they are a terrorist group. Mm-hmm. And terrorist groups are not known for their high levels of honesty. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. So, backing up then, because we're not going to try to give everyone the answers to, like, how they should come down on the situation. Yeah, no. But how should a Christian or how should someone who wants to approach this insightfully, what questions should they be asking? What should they be looking at? What, what do you think are, what should they be factoring in? Okay, well, in this case, um, in particular, mm-hmm. there's a lot of different factors come into play in different times. In this case in particular, I think the first thing you have to look at is what are the, you have to take, you have to look at scripture and look at the commands. You know, we have the commands to do justice, love, mercy, walk humbly, right? Like that's the yeah. kind of the, the, the ballpark thing. But in scripture, there are commands that apply to persons mm-hmm. and there are commands that apply to governments. Okay. So for example, the command not to murder is applicable to a person. Right. Okay. And yet at the same time, there's a warning to, to, to that the government bears the sword for a reason. Right. Okay. So, and the implication being to take life, right. That's what a sword traditionally would do. Right. It's not really built for other things. Um, so what it means is that you have an aspect of roles. Okay. An individual shouldn't be doing that, but a government can. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so first, the first thing you have to do in looking at scripture to apply to the situation is say, okay, which commands apply to what level? And I think one of the things that people often get tripped up on, over and over and over is they will take personal commands of scripture and try and apply it to a nation state. And you know what? Those aren't the same. Right. There's a lot of commands that don't work applied up or down. There are commands to governments that should not be understood by individuals to be applicable to them. And there are commands, a lot of commands to individuals that should not attempt to be uh, continued by a a government. Mm -hmm. Uh, Except one. And that's the one that he reigns when he comes back. Because at the end of the day, every Christian turns into a monarchist, right? (laughs) Um, But we're just really picky on who the monarch gets to be. Um, That being said, so I think first you look at scripture and say, what are the commands applicable here? And the first thing you have to do is wait out the ones that are applicable to persons versus the ones that are applicable to governments. Okay, okay. fine. Then we get to the ones on governments. Then we say, okay, we are com- governments are commanded to do justice. And there's actually a whole host of things governments are commanded to do. Okay. Um, and then you say, okay, if here's my commands, then you say, here is the fact pattern. And, and on this part, 
as a Christian, this will take work is figuring out what the actual facts are because you will get wildly contradictory information. Right. Okay. Even some of the stuff I've said here, like about what's happened in the Middle East, I think it's right. But I understand there's a certain level of I haven't gone through and dug through all of this yet to make sure it's all perfectly accurate. Right. Some of it may have been misreported. Some of it may have been misrepresented. Some of it may have just been, you know, a rumor that turned into a story. Right. It sounds right. Okay. So you do your research. Mm -hmm. You look at not only what happened, but what has happened. This, This history and precedent that goes into there. You look at the trustworthy rating of what you're working with and who you're working with and why. And then you start looking at the commands of scripture and you look at the, the actors and you say, okay, who's doing a better job of lining up with what scripture compels? Okay. Yeah. Because you know what? The answer, if you're looking for who lines up with scripture perfectly, the answer is going to be no one. Okay. Mm. Um, that is usually how it works in life today. Uh, but you can say what's, what's closer to what God designed it to be. Yeah. Okay. And I think as a Christian looks at this, you advocate to both sides to conduct themselves in a way that is more in line with scripture than not. Okay. So I think when it comes to a Christian response to this, you say when, in whatever venue of influence or platform you are given, mm-hmm. you uphold and commend biblical principles of government to both sides. Mm-hmm. Now, one side might listen more than the other. Okay. Maybe one side you have more influence in. Admittedly with the state of Israel, we can say, Hey, you want these $387 million in weapons? Here's the rules we need to apply to that. Okay. Right. And the, whereas we're not doing that deal with Hamas uh, for reasons. Okay. So there may be one side you have more influence in. That's fine. Take advantage of that to do, to create a, a, a more biblically just and right society. Mm-hmm. All of that being said, it's messy. Okay. And you're going to find people of good character, conduct, and belief on the other side of the issue. Right. Some of them, are there because they've thought it through just like you have, and they've come to a different conclusion based on possibly different data, different type of reasoning, different approach. Some of them will be on a different spot because although well-intentioned, they have not thought it through. Right. For those, you can have that discussion, have that back and forth. Some people will be there for other reasons. Okay. And, and so understand just because you've gotten to one spot does not mean that everyone else is going to have to be there. And this is not one of those things where scripture says, and thou shalt or thou shalt not. Right. right. This is something where we're taking principles of scripture we're doing our best to apply it to the world with, with a admittedly imperfect and incorrect ability to see all that is real. And then we're taking that information and trying to apply biblical principles to that and saying, I think that means we're on this side. But that is like four, five, six, seven, eight, nine steps removed from what scripture says thou shalt. Right. Right. Which means at this point we say, here's what I think humbly. Right. And you can advocate for your ideas, but understand that they're, that they are, they are limited by our human reasoning. Mm-hmm. And facts. Right. And as a result, you hold those things that scripture does not speak to explicitly with a looser hand than the things that scripture says thou shall, right? Okay. When scripture starts speaking very clearly, you can hold those significantly firmer. Right. And when you're just saying, this is how I think the principles of scripture applied to this fact pattern would apply in this moment. Well, okay, we've gotten well outside of what what God said, we're trying to take what God said and apply it. And there's a problem because in the application, the the vehicle that's going through is the fallen human named Ethan or Joel. Right. And there's a weakness there. <laughs> there <laughs> okay. is. And, and so, so I, th- I think that's why I would argue that you come at this with, you know, as, as much insight and wisdom as you can pull from scripture as applied to the fact pattern that you as best you can discern with a lot of humility, just sprinkle over the whole thing, because you know what? We don't know all things and we get it wrong. 
right? Yeah. So, so I guess um, walking away the big picture, what would you say, why would you say this is an important discussion to have? Because I think most people have not thought through the implications of what they believe as it relates to what, how they function in politics. In fact, you see this all the time in, uh, with people where they believe a thing and they do another thing. Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes that's because there's a reason, but often we live as hypocrites. Okay. We live as people that are, um, have, have dual souls. Now that's the wrong word, but kind of an old poetic piece, but this idea of, of conflicted desires where there's like, I believe this and I do that. And they are, what, what is, what did Paul say? You know, I don't do the things that I want to do. And I do the things that I, I want to do. It's that. And this right. happens all the time, but Paul at least recognized that for a lot of us, we haven't gotten that far. Right? We Absolutely. don't realize that we're, we're living in a disconnected state. Yeah. And so it comes to that idea of, of self-reflection, looking at scripture and looking at where we are today. And, looking at ourselves and going, okay, is there stuff that I do that doesn't line up with what I say I believe? Mm -hmm. And so I think that has to happen. And then you go to the applying it to other areas. And I think for a lot of people, they've gotten to a spot in politics that is largely separated from the, what we believe as applied and kind of working that down. It's just say, yeah. here's what I think is best. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, it's in a sense, it's gut instinct, right? It's what we think is best. And people operate like that all the time. Yeah. And it's, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but I am saying it has some pretty significant weaknesses. Like, like all things do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Joel, we could go on for hours, we days at this point with talk. I mean, with just even the history of yeah. this discussion. But thank you for coming back on. We'll have to have you back on for other discussions like this. I would love to do it. Thank absolutely. you. Sure thing. So until then, this has been Story War and I'm E.L. Nunn.